This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. I am in Fort Collins, Colorado, not very far from our office or my home, um, keeping it close in this kind of COVID era, but enjoying a face-to-face podcast today over at Odell Brewing with uh, Chief Operating Officer for Odell Brewing, Brendan McGivney. Welcome to the podcast, Brendan. Thanks a lot, Jamie. Appreciate you being, having me. Well, you know, this is another one where I could have talked to you years ago when we got this thing started and uh, we've kind of waited for the right moment. Uh, definitely didn't want to, you know, focus too much on our backyard right here in Fort Collins. But I think uh, given the circumstances and certainly given uh, what Odell has done for the world of brewing, it's a merited conversation. I can't wait to dig in and talk about all the ways that you all use hops, choose hops, um, add hops into beer in a multitude of ways and all the uh, the cool things that you've learned along that process in the past. Uh, you know, uh, you know, other brewers that have come through Odell and worked for Odell, like uh, Joe Morfeld of Pine House Pizza, we talked to on episode 50 of the podcast, um, spoke highly and credited you with their knowledge and learning in the world of understanding hops, selection, and everything else. And so uh, I figure, you know, we talked to Joe, we might as well come back and talk to uh, uh, the uh, Jedi master that uh, <laughs> that instilled the knowledge uh, right there in him. So looking forward to this conversation. Uh, before we get started, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GD Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel GD ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize like Russian River and Nkasi, Jack Zabby, Samuel Adams, and more trust GD to chill the beer you love. Call GD Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, Old Orchard supplies craft juice blends from the heart of Beer City, USA. As the industry blending experts, they supply major national brands and growing breweries alike. They've been the best kept juicy secret in craft beverage for years, but now the secret's out. Breweries across the border experiencing a seamless transition to Old Orchard as their new juice supplier. So hop aboard the Old Orchard fruit train. Their sample kit starter pack is waiting for you at www.oldorchard.com brewer. I'm pretty sure uh, even other brewers that have worked at Odell at various points, like Chad Jacobson and some others that have also been on the podcast, have I, I keep hearing your name a lot. Um, and yet, before we started this, uh, you mentioned that you'd never done a podcast before. And I love that. <laughs> yeah, I like to kind of stay under the radar. Honestly, yeah. uh, we're, we have such a fabulous team here at Odell Brewing. Yeah. and always have that. Uh, we kind of made a conscious decision long ago not to have a rock star or hero or kind of face of the brewery because it right. truly is a team collaborative effort. So uh, it is an honor to be recognized by folks that have come on through here. And I've, I have a lot of respect for Joe and Chad and, and Zach Turner out at Single Hill and Yakima and, and others that have, uh, have gone on to start their own breweries and do a great job. But let's talk about Odell and let's talk about you. Talk to me about your history through brewing and how you ended up in this position now, kind of COO is your title, but you kind of see over, oversee all the brewing operations. Yeah. I mean, we, when I started here, I think there were three or four of us in production total. Yeah. Uh, that was 25 years ago. Yeah. And uh, so we had to wear a lot of hats back then. And as we've grown as a company, you know, I, I've been able, fortunate enough to grow as an individual and go back to school for training. And, you know, whether it was brewing or project management or executive MBA stuff and uh, just learn more about the business side of it and yeah. leading teams. Uh, so it's kind of a, it's been a 25 year evolution to this position. Is this your first brewing job? This is. I was an underage home brewer at Colorado <laughs> State University when I was, uh, I moved here right when Odell started. Yeah, yeah. So uh, 1989, you know, I was a, a 19 year old student. Yeah. And I was brewing my own beer and, and uh, kind of snuck into the homebrew club. And uh, Doug, Doug Odell was, was kind enough to share his insight and, and techniques and uh, helped us all get better as homebrewers. Yeah. In fact, there were, uh, you know, Jeff, Jeff Liebisch was one of the, the homebrewers, uh, one of the co-founders of New Belgium Brewing, was also a homebrewer in that yeah. group. So, you know, Doug deserves a lot of credit for kind of opening up doors for homebrewers to get into the professional brewing landscape. 
you know, and that cycle has continued in every generation of new breweries since then, you know, where that, uh, and that give back and that development and that, uh, growth in the home brewing market has turned out some of the most, uh, interesting and exciting brewers here today, but it's awesome to see that that's the way it's always been. It has. Yeah. 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 That's been, uh, you know, perpetuated. I, I would say going back to when I started here at Odell, we went to NBA conferences and there were very few craft brewers around. It was mostly AB and Coors. Right. And this is before InBev was involved. And the, the brewmaster and uh, assistant brewmasters at, at Anheuser-Busch were sharing information with us tiny little craft brewers. So it's the the camaraderie and, and connection of, of all brewers back then. I mean, I have to extend that out to the, the big brewers of the day. Yeah. I think it's a little different today, but you know, that was a, that table was set, so to speak by all brewers at that time. So brewing in general was different, very, very different in 1989 compared to what it is today. Um, if you're looking back at it, what are some of those kind of pivotal moments where you noticed things had taken not just like an incremental improvement, but, but kind of looking back, maybe made a big jump. I think, uh, you know, as most brewers would probably say who were around, uh, in the eighties drinking craft beer, uh, there's no doubt that Ken Grossman and Sierra Nevada, Nevada set the stage with Sierra yeah. Nevada pale ale. I mean, they just changed the game completely. None of us knew that you could make a beer that that was so fruity and delicious and full of, cascade hops what are those right, right. Like it was uh what are hops it's an ingredient you can't taste in a, in a macro brew but um yeah sierra nevada no doubt set the stage for me in craft brewing and then kind of that next layer would be like a 90 shilling from odell or yeah or some of the you know earlier craft brewers but um, and i love that i mean 90 shilling being this kind of signature beer for odell for the longest time and and i imagine it's shifted a little bit now you know in the last decade but for a lot of my you know my formative craft beer experiences started in the mid 90s when i turned 21 and you know that that kind of scottish ale or you know a malty malt forward beer that was what craft beer was you yeah. know um it had flavor <laughs> <laughs> it's it's and it didn't just have bitterness i mean bitterness wasn't a, a predominant driver in beer at that right. point um you know talk to me a little bit about how um Odell's approach to what you make has shifted over those years that, uh, you know, it's not that you've changed wholesale. Obviously you still make a lot of 90 shilling and you, but you know, as talk to me about the process of adding new products into that mix of what that product development process has looked, used to look like, and now looks like for you. And then, um, you know, how you decide how things fit within that Odell family. Yeah, that's a interesting question. I, I think, you know, the, the short, easy answer is innovation has always been a core value of this company. I mean, 90 shilling in 1989 was like nothing else on the market. Right. So it was way out there. Right. And then when we when we came up with our IPA in 07, it was not like any other IPA on the market. It, we really uh, decided to change the course of it was, the, you know, it was an arms race for IBUs back right. then, if, right. you, if you recall. And we oh, do, we unfortunately, do, yes, yeah, I do and, recall. And that was the IPA, right? right I mean, that right. was what people were looking for. And we decided, even though there's no data to support it, we just believed in a new focus on flavor and aroma and less on bitterness was, um, was really what we wanted to drink, honestly. And then we brought that to the market and it came out and won back-to-back gold medals at, you know, GABF and World Beer Cup. It's like, whoa, we weren't, we specifically set out not to fit the style guidelines however the beer was appreciated by you know world-class judges so was the genesis of odell ipa driven by a idea for flavor that then sought ingredients or by what you were tasting and smelling in new opportunities coming out of uh of hop growers in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, the the stuff that the the hop growers are doing and have done, you know, consistently out in the Yakima Valley and Willamette Valley and um, in Southwest Idaho, or it, it's amazing. I mean, they have there are new flavors and aromas coming out every year. Uh, the Hop Breeding Company and some of the other uh, breeders out there are doing just phenomenal work. So there there's always these these right, new. I mean, right. consider them spices, right? You have always have a new 
layer of spice to play with. And uh, going out there at that time was kind of like, you know, that's when the Simcoe's and Amarillo's were, were out and about. And they were so different than, you know, your typical Cascade. And, right. And, you know, for Odell IPA, to be totally honest with you, we leaned into Centennial and we leaned into Amarillo and we leaned into Simcoe. And uh, those, those hops you weren't typically put together heavily on the dry hop side of things, yeah. you know, they weren't readily available necessarily. Not many people knew about them. So, um, we, we did lean into those and you're right. Some of that ex- exploration out in the hop fields led to the idea that, Hey, the, if we could translate these beautiful, fresh, fruity, complex aromas into a finished beer, that's a totally different ball game than just talking about IBUs. So you've been walking, you know, in the hops fields and, and rubbing hops in Yakima for a long time now. Um, how have those flavors and even some of those same hops varietals um, shifted and changed over time? I think you see a lot more consistency now. Yeah. Okay. And when you talk about the work that some of the, the private companies have done, I mean, obviously there's a place for public varieties and there's a place for private varieties. We, we need both, right? And I would say the private, you know, again, I'm going to hop breeding company as an example. I'm not saying they're the only ones, sure. but we've seen some pretty big successes from that group in For terms sure. of Citroen Mosaic. And, right, right. You know, some of the, the hops we get to play with and the, we, we got to play with, you know, Mosaic before it was Mosaic. It was just a, it was a number and, and we, yeah. used, we used it in a barrel aged beer. I mean, that was insane, <laughs> but it was worth a shot. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, other people went on to dump it into IPAs with great success. Um, so I think that those companies, Hop Breeding Company in particular, has done a fantastic job yeah. in, of ensuring quality. So they're out there. They're in the fields. They're making sure that their metrics are being met before they stamp their brand on it. I mean, yeah. it really is. That's the power of kind of the private breeding sector is that, you know, it's a brand that they're proud of and they're trying to build you know, trust in it. And, right. and they've done a fantastic job of that. So I would say my answer is, is again, consistency. You see more consistency out of the private varieties than yeah. you do maybe the public ones, but all the hop dealers are doing a, a great job of vetting everything that comes in and, and they provide a tremendous service for the brewers. How much range do you see year to year in some of the, the core varieties that you use? Yeah. I mean, there it's agronomics. So, yeah. you know, it's uh, most of it's out of your control. <laughs> So it's really up to the brewer to adjust. I think if you, one of the reasons we've been successful with some of our hoppy beers is that we're not so stringent on, I mean, like I said, IPA was started with these three, you know, these three hops. IPA has nine hops in it, right? So every year. Nine hops. Nine different varieties. Yeah, right. So every year we're kind of, (laughs) you know, fading some in and out based on the performance of that hop year, that crop year. So mother nature dominates, you know, you can't. When, you know, a blowdown occurs or, or voles get into your field or, or whatever may happen, it's uh, you have to make the adjustment as a brewer and not just rely on the raw material. I mean, same goes for malt. Yeah. Some years are, are better than others. Some years have higher protein than others in, in the barley, and you just need to make adjustments in the brew house. That's kind of that art science, again, coming together. I want to talk a little bit more about that, about how you incorporate that evaluation process into the overall brewing uh, process. But before we do that, uh, this episode is brought to you by Hopsteiner, your premium hop supplier dedicated to delivering quality hops and hops products in every package. Visit hopsteiner.com for a complete list of offerings or select shop hops to start ordering today. Also, Ska Fabricating is excited to introduce the newest player in their all-star lineup of canning line automation, the Magic Bus, a fully automatic can depalletizer with pallet management. No more pouring time and labor into the manual handling of pallets, top frames, and tear sheets on your canning line. Packaging teams can simply load cans, deband, and press start. To learn more, contact Ska Fab today at 970-403-8562 or reach out online at scafabricating.com. Brewers also always talk to me about how, you know, they change and, and make, pro, you know, some changes as, as things like this, you know, crop year might change. But I'm always fascinated by what that feedback loop looks like. You know, what, how, what is that genesis and how do you evaluate, say, 
you know, now this new crop year or some of these or the standards of this batch that just came in, you know, from the, the hop supplier that was part of our selection. But, you know, how do you go through that validation process and say, yes, this is what we, you know, we, we rubbed in Yakima and what we ordered and this is meeting the spec that we sent or this doesn't quite hit us the same kind of way and maybe or maybe this is now aging in a different way than we might have expected it to you know because it's been sitting for six months since we uh since we rubbed it like what is that you know i know you all have a very stringent approach to that at odell what does that look like for you all yeah you hit it spot on jamie i mean there there is evolution there's oxidation in the hop right over time and some varieties degrade faster than others and as you get to use those varieties you understand like for example, a centennial is not going to last, you know, it's going to fall apart on you pretty quickly. The, the hop storage index is high typically for that variety. So um, you take that into account. And, and so we do the evaluation, the organoleptic evaluation at, at hop harvest, Yeah. but then we do it ongoing. So as the brewers are opening up a new box of hops, you know, the directive is to give it a whiff. Let's check out the pellet. Cause it could be a processing thing. It could sure, be a, sure. a bag that, you know, was, was popped along the way or something yeah. like that. So we are evaluating not only at the crop year, you know, at, at harvest, but also every time, at, as we, every time wow. we, we open a box, we are, we're doing a kind of a mini evaluation. And again, our team is so strong. Everyone gets it yeah. and believes in it and, and uh, goes through that process. And so if somebody senses something that they think is off, what, what does that look like, that process? Yeah. Of? So they'll raise their hand and we have a, a group that we call the RAD team, the R&D team that'll yeah. kind of get together and, and quickly um, evaluate the situation and say, oh, all right, that we found this, this box. Maybe this box got wet or something happened along the yeah. way. Uh, we do make sure we, we ship our, our hops cold. Um, so, but in the past, maybe you'd get a box from a, a supplier that was shipped warm and it expanded and caused trouble. Um, so we'll make a determination based on what's happening right then and there, whether we just eliminate that one box or is it a whole batch thing. So we'll, we'll dig deeper and deeper until we get yeah. the answer and then we make a recipe adjustment. You ship all your hops cold? Yep. What's, yep. what's, yeah, I, imagine I mean, we pay for, you've you know, tested it both ways. I'm sure. What do you, what do you find uh, the difference? Yeah, to we've be? been doing that for a long time and you know, oxidation just comes down to, to yeah. temperature and time. So if you can keep your temp down, you can extend your time. It's that simple. Then, you know, as you're making that kind of evaluative on a in broader strokes, you know, as some of these bigger things change year to year, you know, you mentioned pulling hops into and taking them out of, uh, you know, even core brands like Odell IPA, um, how, what's that decision-making process look like and how do you go through that kind of evaluative you know, thing? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, a lot of times it doesn't just come down to how that hop performed, but we look at it more holistically. And one of the reasons we d design recipes the way we do with so many different layers of, of hop varieties is we want to make sure that what we're using also works for the grower. We, you know, there's mm. only so many acres out there. Yeah. So we're not going to say demand that this, this dog of a hop continue to be produced. We need to work with the growers. We need to work with the suppliers mm. to make sure that this thing is sustainable for the long term. We can't just add more acres as time goes on, right? We need to find more efficient hops and ways to use hops. And um, so being part of that conversation is really important to me personally, that we are working with the growers and the dealers to, to determine what makes sense for the industry not just for you and your brand. You know, Tim Matthews uh, from Oscar Blues said the same thing to me when I talked to him last year. That's because Tim's a really smart guy. Tim is a very smart guy, <laughs> I agree. Um, you know, and, and talked about that same kind of thing, that piece of these hops needing to work, even new hops needing to work in an economic way for all of these growers. And he was making a, a very uh, pitched argument for non-proprietary approaches to hops for that same very reason that the more acres that brew that that hops growers can um, you know grow of these things the more cost effective it is for them to do it the more they can insulate themselves from some of the you know, potential downsides of this and it just makes it more agri agronomically viable um you know but you're even stating that for some of these older hops varieties just because it was a part of your recipe you know five or ten years ago doesn't mean that other groups want to use that hop now. How, how how many hops have you made that kind of 
shift with and said, hey, okay, now this is just not feasible for you to grow at a cost-effective rate. We can find something that's going to get us the same place and uh, and do it in a way that works better for you all. Yeah, that's uh, there, there's been quite a few of them, honest, okay. honestly, and uh, it, it's not a hard cut. So I'll use Perlay as an example. That was a hop we loved. We used it all over the place. Um, but it just wasn't agronomically strong. It, mm. it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't worth. The yields were bad. Yeah. And the the inputs were high, and the consistency was was not there. And as the acreage started dropping, it's like we're not going to fight to keep this hop in the ground when it really doesn't make sense for anybody. Yeah. So we started a, a slow process, you know, over a couple of years of starting to tweak recipes and look for other hops that would not only it's, it's not a direct replacement, right? Yeah. Our, our, one of our overall themes is always better. So we're always trying to improve our existing process, our recipe, our benefits, our pay. I mean, always yeah. better is a driving force for this company. So when we look at a recipe and we know, I can see two years down the line, you know, maybe Pearly's not going to be as viable as it is today. Then we start that process. So it's a slow tweak and ultimately leads to a better end product but isn't a hard cut so people are confused interesting so you just kind of phase it out or uh, yep. and then blend in gradually over time that's yep. an interesting strategy well, you're, you're using the similar crop year and just just spreading it out for a little bit or uh, yeah you want to maintain the flavor profile of the brand right and you can do that with lots of different hop varieties if you're a good brewer you don't need to rely on the two that you built your recipe on, right? You can start tweaking and playing. And we have the benefit of having two R&D facilities. We have yeah. a pilot system here in Fort Collins and one down in Denver. So we're, we're constantly playing not only with brand new ideas, but tweaking existing brands just to see, you know, how this could work. And then we do it on the big system if we can prove the concept on a smaller scale. Give me an example of, of something that you've uh, played around with and and, uh, and tested. You, you know whether it's worked or hasn't actually worked for you. Um, on the new product development or sure. just yeah. So sipping pretty is yeah. a great example. So that's uh, that's our fruited sour. Right. Uh, it's not over the top sour. You know, it's right. kind of a it's a more sessionable sour. So it's to tart speak. beer. It's not a sour uh, right, beer. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a kettle sour. So we have a kind of a lacto reactor on the side in our brew house that we use to inoculate the wort and uh we we set up a pretty fun little process to cool it down and maintain yeah. temp and we get our our ph and our ta exactly where we want it and then we hit the boil and then send it to the fermenters add fruit and yeast and and go for it um, but that was a beer that started uh from brent cordell he's our pilot brewer down in denver and he made a guava goza just like hey i'm gonna try this guava goza I'm like, cool man go for it and people went nuts for it. I mean, the consumer absolutely loved it, demanded it. It flew. It was our bestseller. So we said, all right, well, let's take that feedback and bring it to the market. So we brought it back up to Fort Collins and released Sippin' Pretty, which is a, you know, a tweaked version of the original Guava Goza from, yeah. from Rhino. Hmm. So that, that would be an example. And going back to our IPA, I think we brewed at least 10 different pilot brews of IPAs here before we decided, yep, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. And then we brought it up to the big system. So we do that regularly when we come up with new brands. Innovation is just at our core, right? That's important. So for IPA, for example, we divert some wort into some pilot tanks mm. and dry hop them differently, right? Okay. And then we could evaluate those three separately as unique beers and decide what we liked or didn't like about each one. And we always have the permission to dump it. Like, I mean, yeah. we kind of go into it. We know if you're going to innovate and you're really going to push the envelope and try new things, you are going to lose beer. You are going to fail. If you don't fail, you're not trying hard enough. So we build that into our model to say, we know we're going to be dumping some beer, especially on the pilot system. So let's plan for it and not feel bad when we do it because we learn something every time. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's how we'd handle IPA is really splitting some work that we're sending to the big tanks into the little tanks and dry hopping differently. Is there one hop that might be an Odell IPA that no one would ever expect is in that beer? One hop that no one would expect, huh? I don't know. What do y'all expect? <laughs> you got nine <laughs> hops. That's a lot of hops to choose from right it there. It is, yeah. I, you know, I'll, I'll give a nod to your, uh, your your sponsor there, Steiner. We we have some Bravo in, in okay. Odell IPA. Yeah, that's uh, one of the Steiner um, bread 
bread hops that's uh, really a beautiful hop. I think it's you know based on Nugget, I think was one of the parents there. And uh, really stable, uh, really pleasant. Uh, hop that does some fun things when you when you dry hop with, with it so what uh, from a sensory perspective what do you find that's uh, fun or interesting about it you know that one kind of shifts around based on abv so it really okay. it really has a, a wide range um yeah i would encourage folks to to play around and, and see what they, you know not just bravo but all hops actually yeah, yeah. different yeast strains and different abvs will, will give you some different aromas and it's just one of those things you have to you got to try to figure out what you like and what you're getting out of it. But, you know, on the higher ABV side, you'll get more, you know, pineapple, yeah, tropical kind of, and lower you get a little more pleasant grassy citrus kind of notes. Let's talk about hops terroir for a little bit. You know, I mean, I know it's a popular subject uh, and maybe we read a little more into it than we should. Maybe we don't read enough into it. Uh, from your perspective, tasting uh, or rubbing hops from, you know, similar varieties from, a uh, number of different growers in different states. Uh, you know, how broad is the difference for you? And do you find yourself finding, um, you know, uh, specific terroirs for, for some of the hops that you like more than others? I know this comment's going to piss off some of my friends in the hop industry, but we actually find a great variation. Sure. In, uh, so an Oregon Cascade to us yeah. is a different variety than a Washington Cascade. Yeah. An Idaho Chinook is a different variety than an Oregon Chinook to us. Sure. Now, I'm not sure. saying that that's for everybody, but we find that there are some consistent um, flavor profiles associated with, with locations for sure. Yeah. And that's just, that's my personal opinion. And I know some people, you know, to protect the brand or the, or the, the variety, like to say they're, you know, a Cascade's a Cascade or, or whatever it may be, but there's there's no doubt in my mind that the, terroir is important it's you know i think it's such a tough question you know that you could also state that brewers shouldn't even list the hops that are in it that you know that a a chef doesn't talk about which spices they use to make a specific dish because you're giving away you know the the secrets in that regard um but we also find that from a marketing perspective that consumers enjoy specific tastes of certain things and when they find something that they like they like a, you know to taste at brewers other expressions of that kind of thing um it's a challenging one and this is one we're in the middle of our ipa issue for craft beer and brewing right now and tasting through all of these ipas i've found that even with our blind review panel i if it's a nelson ipa or a sabro ipa where sabro is a giant component of it i have to tell them like i can't they can't just blindly review that because it tastes completely different than the Citra Mosaic beer they may have had just before that. Yep. And so trying to judge those two things on the, on the same scale is unfair to either one of them. Generally, this, that Citra Mosaic beer is going to be way sweeter and just brighter and juicy citrus. But that Nelson Sauvin beer is not going for that, generally you know, speaking. It is going for a, you know, usually a drier approach. Um, and that kind of thought hit me like, are we at this point where we need to start talking about hops varieties in the way that wine growers talk about wine uh, grape varietals, that they are now starting to have so much impact on the flavor expression of these beers that not knowing what those are negatively impacts the consumer perception of them? Yeah, I think we've moved there already, honestly, with, you know, I think Citra is probably the best example where you know, there are lots of citra named beers, right? If someone's using citra predominantly there, they can't wait to tell you that it's citra because the consumer yeah. loves citra, right? It's a beautiful hop and people, people want citra. So the brewers are quick to point out when there's citra in their beer, I think. Yeah. Uh, so I think we're already there. Uh, the Sabro comment is, is interesting or, or Nelson or, you know, those hops are such outliers, right? right. That, uh, I think it's cool to be able to communicate to the customer, like, that's what you're tasting. So, it, you know, they're somewhat polarizing, perhaps. They are. Um, and, and I've had plenty of judges say, I either love Sabro or I'm not a big Sabro fan. Right. And so at least knowing that can explain to them why they may or may not. Now I smell something like, oh, that's woody, coconutty. Oh, yeah, that's Sabro beer, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes kind of a signature identifiable thing. But if you're trying to judge that towards some sort of mean of fruity, hazy IPA, 
it's going to take you in a different direction than yeah. that and not deliver that. Yep. Yeah. And I think, you know, some of those outlier hops, um, there's, you know, there's a public variety that I, I think is super interesting that we play around with called cashmere. Yeah. And, uh, you know, agronomically we're trying to figure out, does it make sense? But, you know, again, it's a public variety and it can do some beautiful things in beer, but if you lean on it heavy, you know, the, you're not going to like it perhaps, but if you can feather it in, and I would say the same about a Sabro or a Nelson. Like, you don't necessarily have to hit the customer over the head with it. Yeah. You maybe can can layer it in and, and bring up some highlights of other hops. Hops play together differently. Sure, So, sure. you know, that's one of the things with the combos that we do is we realize that, you know, hop A combined with hop B is very different than just hop A or just hop B. They, they do play off each other and... Um, create new flavors and aromas. So I think there's a place for all the hops that are out there, honestly, and it's up to the brewer to use them a little more tactfully. They don't have to be single hop, like wham, here's, here's your Sabro, taste it. You know, it's like, you know, Hey, there's a little layer of tropical in there somewhere. What's that coming from? You know? So I don't know that we need to move for, I would hate to just have Citra IPAs and Mosaic IPAs and Sabro IPAs. Like I think it, we need that layer. We need that complexity. We need that brewer freedom and creativity to create beautiful end products without necessarily hanging your hat on the brand or the variety of the hop. So I'd like to see it maybe even less of that. Honestly, I would not want to be in the wine world where I like Merlot's or I don't like Merlot's. Well, have you had all the Merlot's like in IPAs you can do. And still, you know, wines sold as Merlot generally have a blend of other grapes in yeah, them, too. Yeah, because maybe that was a bad any, example. No, well, uh, you know, and Cabernet Sauvignon, the same kind of thing. Nobody wants to drink a 100% Cabernet Sauvignon wine. It's going to be unbearable, you know, but with a small, you know, smaller percentages of other things, it just creates this bigger, rounder, softer, you know, piece. Um, I want to talk to you about those those uh, kind of point guard hops, those, those hops that are really good at delivering. Even <laughs> point if they, guard, there you, you go. Know, they, even if they don't score themselves, like, uh, you know, the ones that are really good at dishing it off and, uh, and setting other uh, hops up uh, to score. But before we do that, um, this episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publishers of Historical Brewing Techniques, The Lost Art of Farmhouse Brewing by Lars Marius Garshall. Equal parts history, cultural anthropology, social science, and Travelog, Historical Brewing Techniques, describes Northern European farmhouse brewing and fermentation methods that are vastly different from modern craft brewing. Order your copy of Historical Brewing Techniques today at brewerspublications.com. Also, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions give you a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, special deep dive email only for all-access subscribers, premium content, and all-access exclusive merchandise. Go to beerandbrewing.com and click on the subscribe button to join now. Um, and I've had other brewers talk about that kind of piece and effect of some of these hops that they use, not as the the you know their supporting role. You know they're not the leading man. They're not the the that necessarily that hop you're going to put on the label that's going to sell that beer. Um, but they have interesting effects. And so if you mentioned cashmere, are there hops? You know, primetime hops, the the center hops, the that are gonna you know go take the alley oop and make the dunk. Um, you know that work particularly well with that. And there are some other examples where you find some of these you know kind of role playing uh, you know hops help bring out some key features and uh, set some of these other hops up for success. Yeah, that, I love the point guard hop. That's, that's, that's a great term. I worked uh, for Inside Stuff and Hoop Magazines okay. for about four or five years. Nice. And so uh, I've got my basketball analogies uh, stacked back here. I'm missing hoops right about now. Yeah. I think it's coming back soon. Yeah, um, yeah. I to me, hands down, it's Cascade. You know, Cascade is, uh, it just plays well with others. It really does. Um, we, we use... A whole lot of cascade it's a beautiful hop it's getting a little long in the tooth i think the growers are going through a process right now of trying to get some clean root stock in the ground and uh you know hopefully that'll continue and the brewers will contract appropriately i think when that, you see that, that's what a do you problem mean? right now um i think brewers are getting a little used to the spot market right okay. now and uh we need to communicate to the growers what what we want in two or three years because it, it takes a while if you change out a field you're changing out a variety i mean that's a long-term commitment and 
I'm afraid that the Brewers are getting a little too comfortable with not contracting. And uh, I, I guess I'd like to make a plea <laughs> to really take a step back and, and evaluate how important the hops are to your beer and your business and communicate with the dealers and the growers uh, to make sure they know what you need so they can put the work in that they need to well in advance to make sure you have those varieties down the road. And I think Cascade, unfortunately, is one of those hops that's probably under-contracted, you know, one man's opinion. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the usage has gone down, but it's, it's a beautiful hop. That's, that's my point guard, uh, hands down. You know, I'd say some other ones for us in the past were Willamette. What, what do you, you, like, if you're using it with a, another, uh, like, big-name hop or leading hop, what kind of percentages do you tend to, to find yourself using Cascade in to just like bring out that little bit of classic sea hop flavor and, you know, in the, in the bigger mix. Yeah, that's, that's a hard question for me without looking, you know, having our recipes right in front yeah. of me. Um, but it is one of the nine in IPA, yeah. Odell IPA for sure. Um, but it's not necessarily in all of our IPAs, Yeah. but I just think that is one, a really nice base layer that you can build upon with some of the, the more impactful hops. It's just, it's there, there's nothing yeah. unpleasant about a cascade. Yeah. Right. And it's, you know, I think it has this kind of grounding flavor, like this classic craft beer flavor. It's just associated with it. Thanks to Sierra Nevada in large part, you yeah. know, and so it builds that familiarity and that kind of connection to the flavor that you can then take in other directions, but it just, you know, it gives it that kind of air of familiarity. Are there some other, um, you know, some other variations like that that uh, you find compelling and interesting? Yeah, the, again, I think Willamette's one of those. It's yeah. it's less impactful, a little more background, but that's one we've traditionally used. We use less of it now, but in the past, we traditionally layered that one in as well. Hmm. Um, but that's, you know, yields on, on Willamette are a little tough, so we've tried to back away from that. Yeah. On the question of, of contracting versus spot, there's certainly a precedent, even in the hops and the ingredient world, for... Um, dramatic, tragic shortages of these kinds of things. And um, it certainly will happen again. Mm. It is it, not that hard or that expensive, as you say, to kind of prepare for potential downside and give the agricultural side of the business some of the security that they need, but also securing that kind of uh, guarantee you know, of your own ingredient supply at the same time. Yeah, it's worthwhile work to put that time in to figure out, you know, at least an estimate because our, our hop suppliers are our partners, right? Yeah. I mean, across the board, we have amazing companies. I mean, all these guys out there are, are doing a fantastic job and they're going to work with you. Yeah. So let's, let's communicate. That's the key. Communicate with them what you think you'll need. And inevitably that will change, right? You will be wrong. Don't worry about it. You will yeah. be wrong, but then communicate as soon as you know, you're wrong that, Oh, actually I don't need, you know, eight billion pounds of mosaic, I really need yeah. uh, Citra or I really need, you know, something else. Um, just communicate with them because that's what they do. They do it really well. And uh, trust that, that your, your hop partner is just that. They're a partner. They want to make sure the right hops are in the ground and that they're available to you. Nobody wants to tell you you can't buy any, right? They want to yeah. sell you the hops. They just need to know that you need them. So communicate. Uh, you mentioned earlier that rootstock was getting a little bit long in the tooth. Um, what did you mean by that comment? Yeah. So, I mean, over time, yeah. you know, hops will, you know, whether they're attacked by virus or there's, you know, off types that make their way into the, into a field, fields need to be cleaned up. They're not, you know, forever. And Cascade yeah. is an older hop. So it just, and you know, the grows have done a fantastic job of going through this process of cleaning them out and putting new fields in and new clean rootstock, verified virus-free clean yeah. rootstock in um, and that has, that's a major investment. It needs to continue to happen, but it will only happen if the brewer is communicating to the grower that we will continue to need that variety in the future. Yeah. It's almost like they need to name the new cascade, something new, just so it sounds sexy and fun and sure. marketable yeah, to right. consumers yeah. just so that brewers will contract for it and, uh, and buy it and move forward. Uh, what is your, you know, you know, as you all are envisioning hops blends, how do you, you know, say for a, a new beer, um, and you all have launched a few new ones lately, how does that kind of creative process look for you? That really does start with the pilot system. I mean, it starts with harvest and then yeah. moves to the pilot system. 
and then we'll do quite a few iterations on a small scale till we figure out, yeah, this is How something. How do you decide what the iterations are going to be? Uh, again, I, I would say we take it back to our, our very small rad team. Yeah. Uh, it's myself and a, and a couple others that yeah. um, we'll put our heads together and, and just try some things out. We'll bounce ideas around and then uh, go for it. And yeah. then, then we'll run it through panel, which has no, there's no skin in the game there. They're just blind samples. And yeah. And if panel approves and it'll move to the tap room and then if the consumer approves and it really enjoys the flavor profile, then we'll talk about, can we actually get enough raw material to make this a full-time release? If so, when, and then kind of go through that process of bringing it up to full scale. How much time is it between the kind of ideation process and, uh, you know, piloting and then go to market? This beer you're drinking right now, this uh, good behavior has a hop in it. HBC 586. That's been, uh, Years in the making, I've been waiting and waiting and waiting to be able to take this. Yeah. <laughs> this bring this hop into a, a full time beer. So uh, this one in particular, I would say, took probably four years. Wow. Yeah. And so you had this idea that this thing might work well in a low ABV, lower ABV beer, and just needed all the stars to align for that to happen. Exactly. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about um, some of the technical processes behind adding hops. You know, you all have. I remember a beer you released uh, in the last couple of years called Rupture, where uh, it was a fresh grind beer, yep. uh, making a case of of taking those hops and grinding them before you add them to the kettle in order to, like you would with fresh coffee beans, uh, you know, grind right before you use them for in kind of intense flavor. Talk to me a little about some of these um, varying techniques that you all have developed and what and why you find them, you know, uh, valuable. I'm, uh, I think I'm a little twisted. I'm a bit of a change junkie. Yeah. So, uh, when things like that kind of pop into my head, it's like, all right, who's, who's with me? Can we do this? Can <laughs> they, they, anybody in? And, uh, a Brian's lot of, got a crazy idea. Guys. Yeah. And a, a lot of times, <laughs> yeah. you know, our team is so strong and they're, they are much more technically and process, uh, sound than I am. Yeah. And they'll, quickly tell me that's a ridiculous idea we can't possibly do that do you know how inefficient that would be you idiot um but this is one i managed to squeak through and uh it's been fun to play around with both rupture and then hammer chain and yeah um and, and it started just you know i think it was it was a harvest i had some brewer's cuts that i brought back and i was going to do a pilot brew with all these brewer's cuts and i was like well i can't use them the pilot system's not really set up to throw whole hops in it so what am i going to do so i just I kind of food processed them all and the aroma that popped out of that food process, it was mind blowing. I was like, we got to do this. We got to figure out how to do this on a large scale. And that, that pilot beer turned out great with the fresh ground brewers cut tops mm. from that harvest. So that's kind of where that one started yeah. and then uh, grabbed our marketing guy. I was like, Hey, <laughs> I got an idea. He's like, <laughs> we can't just do that right now. I'm like, okay, well I'm going to try it anyway. And then uh, they produced a beautiful, yeah. beautiful artwork and, and got the message out there and it, it's been a fun beer. And we've How done do some other things. How do you do that from a technical it. standpoint? Um, making, we got a hammer mill. We uh, yeah. put in a, a custom made hammer mill and, uh, and there's actually a pellet die on it, but we bypassed the pellet die for rupture. Uh, we do make our own pellets for some other pilot beers or when we're doing experimental hops, we can run it through there and use mm. pellets. Um, so it's nice to have that flexibility. Well, you're just in, doing in your house. own pelletizing right here in house. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's oh, again, geez. horribly inefficient, God. <laughs> but, uh, there were, sure, that that's feasible for every other brewer well, out there to just, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it takes a long time to process a few pounds of hops, but yeah. we did find ourselves in a position last year where the pellets weren't ready yet yeah simcoe pellets weren't ready yet and we had some whole leaf so we actually made our own pellets to get by with ipa for a while and huh. it, they were great <laughs> so we don't want to get into the pellet making business yeah. let yeah. let the hop dealers do that they're amazing at it and we suck but we did figure out how to at least do small batches so for rupture you run it through the hammer mill um how soon before they go into a brew are you milling them? It's, it's hours. Hours. It, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We will not go beyond a couple of hours on that one. Uh, how long does it take to, you know, mill through all of those for a, <laughs> yeah, see that, doing, that's what, for the process guys, or? right. That know oh. what they're talking about. Not the dumb idea guy. Uh -oh. Um, okay. yeah, I think we can run through, I think it takes, uh, oh, I don't even want to give you a bad number, no, but it doesn't okay. take too long to rip through yeah. a bale. You know, we, we can get through, a few bales in in a couple hours from a sensory perspective you know relative to making the same beer 
with, uh, you know, pellet hops that have been pre-pelletized or with whole leaf hops. Um, what do you find in a finished beer that that process adds uh, just from a sensory perspective? Yeah, and that's that's where we made the ultimate decision is when we ran that through panel, we did some bench top stuff with pellets and then we did it with fresh grind from the same lot. Yeah. So we took our whole leaf, ground it up, dry hopped with it, and then our pellets from the same exact lot, yeah. dry hopped with it. And across, you know, it was nearly unanimous over quite a few uh, tasters that the, the fresh hop, fresh ground was preferred. So that's that was the ultimate decision is that we truly believe this can make a better beer, so we're, we're going to go for it. Is there, do you remember the way that they might describe it or how would you describe the difference? Yeah, to me, it's like it's like being at harvest, honestly. It, yeah. It's that, fre- it's when you take a brewer's cut and you just rub it between your hands and that first flash of aroma, which is fleeting, yeah. but is so beautiful, uh, actually came through in the beer. Now, it's an IPA, right? So it, right. you store it warm, put it on a... <laughs> put it on top of your fridge for a while it's gone and it gets real ugly but when it's fresh and it's cold it is just it's uh it is a difference maker yeah are there uh other techniques that you all have been playing with the uh whether it's how you dry hop or um you know timing you know through the kind of fermentation process or other kind of hops usage techniques and processes um that you found some interesting results from yeah we're we've played around a lot i mean i can't, I got a sense. I like can't that, think that of had. where, yeah, <laughs> where we haven't used hops. I mean, we've done you know mash hops. We've done first yeah. wort. We do cool pool where we'll we'll chill all of our work down to you know we'll go as low as one sixty at times you know mm. and then dry hop or uh, add to the whirlpool um, once it's at one sixty and that's more of our our keg beer. So the stuff we're doing at Rhino is where we're really yeah. really pushing the edge because it's not going in a package. We do run micro and if it's, you know, yeah. if it comes in hot, we're not going to serve it, but um there we're it's definitely much more risky to do some of those things on a large scale, yeah. but if we can prove it over and over that it's uh it's scalable, we will do it. So uh we have employed some of those techniques and then obviously the dry hopping, I think a lot of folks have have written about it and talked about it recently, but there's, there's a lot to be said of that early dry hop and and the difference in character of, you know, adding hops early in fermentation versus late and different temperatures, uh, different yeast counts, different yeast strains. Um, so dry hopping is all over the place from fermenter knockout hops to, you know, uh, cold dry hopping and, and, you know, whole leaf and pellets and cryo and, and everything in between. We don't use any extracts. I mean, the cryo is as far as we go. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure we'll, we'll play with it at some point. Um, talk, talk a little bit about the cool pool thing. I love the, uh, the name just is, is fantastic. Yeah. That's what we call it. We actually have it in the SAP cool pool. You know? Yeah. Um, talk to me about the impact of whirlpooling at a lower temperature versus, uh, Coming could, straight out of, out of a boil. It goes back to the original intent of Odell IPA, right? Really focusing on aroma and flavor. Yeah. And we, we use a hop back. We put in a, a big hop back, custom-made hop back in mm-hmm. our large brew house so we can use whole leaf hops after the kettle boil and after the whirlpool. Um, and so there's another way we use But we learned a lot through the hop back that different temps going through the hop bed um, right. creates different flavors. So the bitterness will be reduced right at a lower temp right and you we found that you get some some different flavors in the finished product um than you would at, at a 190 or 200 what does different pool. mean it D- depends on the variety and the combo but sure. yeah i think it's it's a more different is not descriptive enough for i me. know yeah it could, <laughs> got me cool um just a there's like a fuller it i don't want to say sweet but yeah, it, um, yeah. when you use some of those fruitier hops, it has that perception of sweet mm-hmm. um, that that comes through to the to the finished beer. There's something going on there with the sugars and and hopping at, at that temp um, that's that makes a difference. And you're not just maybe we're not volatilizing as many um, you know aromatic compounds because the, the heat's reduced. Uh, but the the flavor profile is definitely different. We prefer it in some varieties and, and some styles, and mm. it's more of a fruity. I would say, sweet fruit would be the. If yeah. I had to sum it up, you get kind of a sweet fruit character in, in the finished beer. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about hop backing. You know, it's it's a cool technique, but also has the potential to be pretty inefficient and and, yeah. and like highly like very expensive, especially when you deal with the amount of hops 
that you all use. Yeah. Um, but it is a core part of your process. How do you balance, you know, that kind of, you know, desire for the flavor, you know, impacts of hopping that way with, um, being cost effective and making a product that's not just horrifically inefficient in taking an an extraordinary amount of hops to make the same amount of beer. Yeah, that's, that's a constant challenge. And we, uh, fortunately we're an independent company, Yeah. right? So we get to make that decision to say we're, we're okay with being inefficient if we get this flavor that we believe will, will matter to the end consumer and will help drive our business. So we quite often make that decision yeah. where we say, yeah, this will not be efficient. It would be more efficient to use extract and it would be more efficient to not have a hop back and it would be more efficient to automate absolutely everything. Yeah. But um, we get to make that call. And if we feel like we're making a better beer by using the hop back that takes more time and, and labor, um, we're going to do it. And that's, uh, we kind of, our guiding principles are, are evergreen. Like we, we intend to be here for generations. We're not, yeah. we're not setting up to show strong numbers in the next year so we can then sell. Sure, uh, we're sure. driven, you know, by purpose or people first, uh, company and, uh, you know, profits kind of the, the outcome, but we're, we're, we're here for the long haul and we, we're passionate about what we do. And one of yeah. our brewers, Johnny, he always says, you know, I'm like, how's it going today, man? He's like, Oh, it's good. I'm just making world-class beer with my best friends, you know? So that's, uh, yeah, yeah. that, that's the, that's our goal is yeah, to make the yeah. best beer we can. And it's a balance. Some beers are not very efficient and yeah. others are right. So we, we look at the whole portfolio rather than beat on a single yeah. brand or, or variety and make sure that we have overall, we have balance and that's just brewing, right? Brewing is balance. You have malt, you have hops, you got yeast, you have water. And you got to balance all these things, right? To make the, even though an IPA is is hop forward, it still has to be balanced with malt. If it was just empty and right. full of hops, it wouldn't be the same experience. So uh, we look at our business the same way. It's a balance. We need to take care of our people. We need to make the best product we can, and then balance out the profitability to make sure it's sustainable. You know, part of that process is always making the beer that your consumers expect and want it to be. Um, Talk to me a little bit about, and you know, as we do that, like consumers' tastes have changed. I mean, consumers' tastes have changed even since 2007 when oh, yeah. you launched Odell IPA and yep. what people expect and drink now, whether it's like the amount of haze that's acceptable or desirable in a beer, or whether it's what fruit character looks like in a beer, or the threshold now is completely different, or you know, that perception of bitterness, which was allowed to be more ragged in the IBU wars of the 2000s with of the aughts, um, <laughs> you know, and now needs to be much more smooth and controlled and uh, um, tightly expressed. Um, how do you, in, in a broader sense, you know, keep brands like Odell IPA that have this core audience and this, this um, revered kind of status in the world of craft beer and also make sure that it still meets what consumers expect that beer to be. Yeah. We just simply take that always better approach to it. And it's, uh, it goes for IPA, it goes for 90 shilling. It goes, we will, we're constantly, constantly tweaking to mm. make sure we maintain our brand profile. Yeah. So if we elevate something to, you know, Odell IPA, I mean, honestly, right now is our, it's our number one beer. Yeah. Right. It's an old IPA, which is crazy. A lot of people's older IPAs are are having a hard time right now. But Odell IPAs are is our flagship today. Even through this coronavirus stuff, it is it's our driver. Yeah. So the work we've put into it to constantly tweak it and make sure we maintained our brand profile and meet the expectation of the consumer, but also quietly in the background bring up the notes that we know the new customer likes is kind of that delicate balance of, sure. you know, it's not the exact same recipe that we launched, like I said, in, in 07, right? We don't have pearly hops in there. We don't have horizon hops in there. Um, and we, we've folded some other ones in that are better. And they, they bring out the highlights more that we really loved about that brand. Yeah. So when we think about it, it's like we want it to to smell like tangerines. You know, we want this thing to be peach and tangerine with a little bit of pine and, and be a well-balanced. There's a malt base there still. The bitterness is clean. Um, it's not over the top, but it's not, it's certainly not sweet. It's, it's 
dry and drinkable and you can have yeah. another. And it, to me, I don't mean to pat ourselves on the back, but there's only a couple of beers I can think of personally that I think the last sip of the glass tastes better than the first one. And it's our IPA and it's Orval out of Belgium. Hmm. And, you know, those are two, two of my go-to beers consistently. And there's certainly others out there and people do amazing IPAs, but the way our IPA is layered, um, to me, it's maintained the original intent of the flavor profile, but it's also, we've increased some of the highlights. Where does that idea of the brand live? What it, what, you know, obviously it's not the recipe itself because right. that can get tweaked here and there and adjusted over time and maybe dramatically different at some point than it used to be, you know, 15 years ago. But where does that, where's that definition of what the brand is live? Yeah, our lab team has done an incredible job of defining our brands okay. and describing them. You know, again, like I said, we want some tangerine, we want some peach, there should be some pine in there, so a, little, it's a, language a little bit of fresh piece. weed. So our sensory is looking for those attributes right. in these beers. They have no idea what we've done with the recipe. So we're, it's a totally blind panel yeah. that's then giving feedback to say you either are or not, are not meeting the definition of this brand, the flavor profile of this brand. So we kind of have checks and balances within our, our system here to make sure that we don't get off track. Yeah. Are, uh, from a lab perspective, do, are they, you know, what, GC mass specking stuff and seeing where, do they have any kind of, you know, no. It's, to, it's I mean, <laughs> it's we, have, we, have, we have lots of instruments, but when yeah. I'm talking about the, yeah, the tangerine is not an evaluation of, uh, you know, what. The actual what the, compounds. The, or, yeah, 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 what the spec says. Um, are, are there any uh, other projects that we haven't talked about that you're particularly excited about or proud of or learned something interesting from? Yeah, I think some of, uh, you know, again, the, the R&D stuff is, to me is just so much fun. It's, a, it's exciting. I honestly love coming to work every day with the, the people that we have yeah. here and the passion that we have for innovation. I mean, we're constantly innovating and we have stuff in the works that'll, that'll be out shortly that's uh, very different from what we've done. I mean, shoot, we just released wine for the first time. and that's we had true, you did. We have uh, folks on our team that couldn't drink beer anymore yeah. right they have there's a health issue where they, okay. they can't have uh there's a barley allergy and our this coworker brought up the idea of hey we have this this property next door that w- what if we started fermenting and blending and and conditioning and and packaging in cans wine and make really good wine like not you know there's yeah. there's some cheap wine on the market right sure. we're talking about like kind of next level wine and charge a little more for it to make sure we can get. In fact, we teamed up with one of our hop growers, Gail Goshi, yeah, to yeah. get some grapes from her farm mm-hmm. that are grown right across the dirt road from from hops that some strata right. hops that we buy. Um, so that was an idea that came up through our coworkers because of a situation. Someone who loved beer and is totally passionate about Odell and said, "I can't drink beer anymore. What if we looked at this?" And he's not the only one. There are some yeah. other folks that are in the same boat. So we realize that we can service more people. Our purpose is building community through beer. And some people can't be part of that because they can't drink beer. They can't have gluten or whatever. So wine is a way to expand our community. It's, it's on our campus. It's right next door. Yeah. And we just released it three days ago or something. I mean, it just yeah. came out this week. Yeah. It's not even available. So, I mean, that was an exciting project that was going on on the side. And we have more stuff like that that's, that's on the way. Um, so that stuff really, I, I love when a coworker just gets passionate and, and owns a project and right. runs, runs with it, right? It's not something I need to be involved with <laughs> or right. you need to work through the details, but we have so many great passionate people that'll run with those projects. And we have, we have a handful of them. We have a, our first food endeavor happening in Denver. We'll be, uh, hopefully the beginning of the year, we'll have a, a pizza place and a brewery down in Sloan's Lake. Okay. So that's, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on that project. Yeah. And based on the success of Rhino, um, we decided, you know, a third R&D system would just ramp up our innovation right. and be able to offer fresh beer to that community. And uh, food was a, a, also a big part of it where there's passion for food internally. We figured, let's, let's see what this looks like. Let's give it a shot we don't have any tap rooms where we don't produce on site. So everything we produce at Rhino is served at Rhino and that's it. So if you want to check out what Brent's doing down there, you can only go to Rhino and get it. Sloan's will be the same thing. So they are standalone small breweries where we can really push the edge of innovation. And we do have permission to just 
drain dump things, you know, yeah. if it doesn't work, but we can try it out and we right. get more opportunities to, you know, we can run one concept on three different brew houses and see, see how they turn out. So yeah. we're excited about, I don't, we're, we're certainly not going to continue this process. It was just an ideal location. Right. Um, one more opportunity to push innovation. So we're, we're going for it. Um, yeah, in a recent reader survey that we put out to our readers, we got about uh, 40, over 4,200 responses, uh, individuals responding to this survey, a uh, nice, big, broad pool of data. One of the questions was how buying habits have changed, how you would describe your purchasing habits before the pandemic versus now through the pandemic. Um, let me, I'll pull that graph up here so I can, I can get it right. One of the questions, uh, the first part of the question was, uh, you know, I love, or how would you describe yourself? And, and that first one was, I love trying a wide assortment of beers from breweries I may or may not be familiar with. Um, that would kind of describe the highly adventurous drinker, you know, and so um, 63% of, of the audience before the pandemic described themselves in that kind of boat. Um, during the pandemic, that dropped from 63.6% down to 36.6%. Um, you know, that's a huge 23-point drop um, in those who would describe themselves as being the most adventurous drinkers. On the flip side of that, on the question, I mostly buy tried-and-true beers I know I like. You know, that's that bad buyer that just buys their core brand, they what they love, and over and over again. Before the pandemic, 6.7% people described themselves that way. During the pandemic, 25.6% of people described that way. It seems like a colossal shift right now in this pandemic era where the idea of experimentation and taking risks on new beers um, has really dramatically shifted and really shifted quickly for brewers. Um, from your perspective, coming at it from you know, this Odell point of view, uh, is that something you've seen? Uh, is it How significant is it? And uh, what does it mean? How do you adapt as a brewery to that? Yeah, we uh, fortunately, we're in a position of, of balance where we do have some traditional brands uh, that we, we've talked about. We've yeah. worked, worked on consistently like Odell IPA that, that are uh, fitting right into your survey, uh, Odell IPA is doing quite well right now in the package. Yeah. Um, on the other side of the coin, we lost all that adventurous beer drinker because we lost our tap rooms, and oh, that's right. where we produced our one-offs. Sure. And and somewhere in between would be our new releases or our seasonals, and it it's it's kind of too soon to tell. It seems like some of them are um, off to a, a, an amazing start and others haven't had the sampling opportunity yet right. because I think that more adventurous drinker hasn't quite gone out and, and tried a Whitkist. You know, uh, it's a grapefruit uh, white ale that we just released that, no, you know, the sampling hasn't, we haven't seen it yet. People haven't tried it yet. And typically we would see quite a bit of sampling initially and then the consumer right. would... would decide based on their repurchasing behavior whether or not they they like that brand or, or they don't um, but we haven't even seen people order a try it the first time and, yeah yeah and try it and, you know, oh, or like in the tap room yeah yeah so we've seen every angle and what we've seen absolutely backs up your survey i mean that's you guys are spot on with with our experience um, has that changed product rollout strategy for you for the next couple of months at least? It, it hasn't. We put, you know, obviously we stopped kegging everything right. immediately, right? Because right? right. all the bars are shut down, all the restaurants are shut down, our tap rooms are shut down. Um, but we are going to start kegging next week as things open up again. Huh. So we, we shifted all of our production to package only. Right. Um, we're not a national brand. We are still a, a regional brewery. Yeah. Um, so we don't have the the national footprint grocery situation. Um, so we didn't quite offset our loss in draft. Yeah, April yeah. was a brutal month. To be honest with you, we got, we got hammered. Yeah. Um, but we kept all our coworkers on, on board. That's a story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we kept all our coworkers on board because we, we truly believe if you take care of the people, they'll take care of the business. And uh, if you take care of the community, the community will take care of your business. And, you know, we, we dipped into our, our charitable piggy bank, so to speak. We had a fund, the growing fund um, of dollars we've allocated over the years just for charitable that we basically emptied out um, for housing and, and food insecurity causes right. in Larimer County. 
Um, so we, we dumped $160,000 into the community during this crisis, yeah. even though we're hemorrhaging money in April. Um, yeah. But that's that, again, is a core belief as an evergreen company that we are, you know, we need to take care of our people and our community in order to take care of the business. That seems like a perfect segue into the question we generally end the podcast with, and that is, uh, what does success look like for you? What does success look like for Odell Brewery? For me personally, it's the the day I retire, which is, you know, I'll probably have to die first. (laughs) (laughs) But this this company is in a a great position to last for for a couple more generations at least. That's our ultimate goal is to be an everlasting company. We we are not set up to to sell or merge or uh, do any of those things. We are an independent long-term company and that's those, that's our guiding light. I mean, that's every time we make a decision, we look to that long-term perspective of how do we keep this thing going for the long haul for our 150 coworkers and our community. And so success to me is I leave here and this place is in great shape to, to continue on the way it has as the Odell's have done um, from founders passing it off to us and uh, we're hundred percent co-worker owned we have an ESOP uh, piece and we have management ownership piece and the Odell still have a piece so it's a nice balance again yeah. the balance keeps coming up for us um, but that, that success for me personally is that this business is set up to be successful long into the future when I'm done yeah yeah that's it's a beautiful thing um, if you want to learn more about Odell Brewing where do they find more about Odell Brewing uh, uh, this is where the marketing team would need to help me. I guess the uh, the website and uh, you know there's an Instagram thing going on. Sure, sure. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll link to it off of the, <laughs> the web you. story Thank with you. this podcast. Nearly two thousand breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with Chandy Chillers. Old Orchard supplies juice blends from Beer City USA. Hopsteiner is your premium supplier for quality hops and hops products. Scott Fabricating invites you to take a ride on the Magic Bus. Historical Brewing Techniques, the lost art of farmhouse brewing, is out now from Brewers Publications. And Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions are the best way to support this very podcast. Brendan McGivney, Adele Brewing Company, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Hey, Jamie, thanks a lot. This is great. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. For those that love to make and drink great beer, Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.